Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Thanks very much for downloading and listening. If you want to listen to my Times Radio show, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, you'll be in very good company. We've just got our first listening figures. A quarter of a million people listen to the show. If you want to join them, and why wouldn't you, uh, you can find us on DAB Smart Speaker on the iPhone app or at Times Top Radio. But here on the podcast, of course, you get the best bits of the show coming up. We read the small print of the budget and try and find the nuggets that you might have missed. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's our columnist panel. And of course, on a Thursday, it is Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. Morning, India. Morning. And James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. Have you ever heard that music before, James? I have. Yeah, I have. <laughs> it's still, is it still on? I think it's on Channel 5. Yeah, I had a, I had a, friend, I had a very strange friend at school who was obsessed with Neighbours. Uh, and when I used to go to his house uh, after school, we'd have to watch it. Are you, were you ever a big Neighbours fan, India? I was actually. I think there was a phase that coincided with me being at home with one of the children when they were very small, and I kind of quite got into watching it. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, you know, the feeling of doing. You seem quite anti-bagpipe, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> are you going? Are you pro bagpipes? I am so pro bagpipe. I can't hear a bagpipe without bursting into tears. Really? Well, I, well, I am the same, but for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um. There we are. There we are. You see, I knew eventually I'd find somebody like bagpipes. I think they're fine. I quite like them if I get off the train in Edinburgh and there's someone playing yeah. the bagpipes. That's nice. The guy who stands on Westminster Bridge playing them every day is really annoying. And mm. I think if your neighbour is playing them, that is quite annoying. And I just quite like the idea that the... the what I like is there's someone who's learnt the bagpipes but is self-aware enough to know they're annoying to go down and annoy insulate Britain. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate I know that people hate them I hate them but I'm going to learn the bagpipes just to annoy the glue people <laughs> anyway anyway that's not what we're here for let's talk about let's talk about the budget uh first of all and uh I just basically I just wanted to get your take really on as as not being sort of necessarily creatures of the Westminster village What's your sort of big takeaway on the on the budget and this sort of slightly schizophrenic Rishi Sunak saying, mm. I'm a low tax, low spending, small state conservative uh, who then embarks on uh, creating the highest tax burden since the 1950s and the highest level of government spending since the 1970s? What's, what's your take on it, um, India? Uh, well, I like the 150 billion on public services. I like the emphasis on skills and disabilities when it comes to um, health and education. Uh, I think Rachel Reeves said a slightly odd thing when she, um, uh, in relation to the, uh, the the reducing the levy on short haul flights, when she said bankers sipping champagne on short haul flights will be cheering. Um, I really don't think they will because it comes to about six quid per person. <laughs> so actually the people who will be cheering are, I don't know, a family of six going to Spain next summer who are saving a 70-odd quid. Um, 
hold on fuel duty, I think, is, I mean, it's not very green, but I think it's probably quite a good thing because petrol prices are through the roof. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it is schizophrenic. I think there's quite a lot to quite like. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, James, is that there's, there's something for everyone. Uh, unless probably if you're a bit green, uh, which is obviously should yeah, all be ahead of COP26. It's not yeah. very... And actually, there's been a, this sort of hint that Rishi Sunak isn't very green for a while. And this clearly is not the budget of someone who is mm. desperate for COP26 to be a, a roaring success. Yeah, exactly. The thing I sort of... The, th- the main thing that struck <coughs> me about it was the way that um, some... There's kind of... There's sort of tides of economic history that seemed to kind of you know fl- you know for the last sort of you know 70 years um we had the kind of you know the post post-war sort of um big state then the sort of 1980s and the you know the shrinking of the state and whatever you're i don't know it just struck me that you know whatever your whatever your personal ideology whatever you sort of say you think about um how the economy should be run you sort of i don't know those sort of larger tides of history this kind of return to you know larger states um this kind of you know uh, renewed interest in the idea that government should sp- should spend um and should tax people Sort of, I don't know, Rishi Sunak, for all his sort of personal beliefs, has, you know, ended up, you know, on this kind of tide of economic history that seems to be going in a particular direction. Just it was very interesting because I, di- I, I didn't, I mean, you know, I'm not uh, a close budget watcher, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect it. Um, and it leaves Labour in a slightly tricky place, isn't it, India? Because um, <laughs> where, where do they go on this? Apart from saying, well, we'd spend a bit more, you know, they, they attack them on the universal credit, you know, they're actually doing the universal taper universal credit taper cut is something that mm. Labour called for a few weeks ago. It's not giving back the £20 a week, uh, which they took away, but it's it's doing some of that. And quite a lot of what they talked about, uh, the Labour Party talked about, he has done. And it, it, apart from saying, well, we'd spend a pound more, it's yeah. very difficult to get cut through on that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I don't really... Yeah, they're, they're, they're in a difficult place. They're in a difficult place. I think they can go, they can go big on the lack of greenness, but... As I was saying, I think ordinary people will be quite pleased about the uh, the fuel and flights um, announcement. So, yeah, difficult. What I'm really amazed by, which I only discovered this morning, thanks to a Thunderer column in today's paper, because um, I'm, I'm fascinated by Richie Sunak's branding. Sorry, I know this isn't actually the actual budget. But no, no, no. no. I really, I'm obsessed with his branding and his sort of sleekness. And I didn't realise that he and Lynn Truss have, paid by the taxpayer, private sort of vanity photographers that follow them around. Yeah. What's so, that about? So the gov- is that, has that always been a thing? No. So uh, if you remember um, when David Cameron became prime minister, he tried to put a photographer on the sort of on the books. Um, actually, you know, the, the sort of the point they made was that it's quite good to be able to capture the things what's you know going on behind the scenes. They've got one in the White I think they've got several in the they've White got, House and you White get House all those sort of, you know, dramatic moments of Barack Obama on the phone or mm. whatever it might be. And uh, there was such a backlash back then in 2010, David Cameron, you turned on it because, you know, he was imposing austerity while hiring a photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, that was seen as a bit shameless. However, uh, such things do not trouble Boris Johnson. And he's got not one, not two, but three uh, photographers on the books who, as well as t- taking photos of the prime minister, they uh, take photos of ministers when they're out and about. And I think the complaint about it is that it is... I think in America, the pool is still quite a big thing. And there are still photographers who go to photographers and journalists who go to everything, every single outing by the, by the president. Whereas mm. what happens here is Boris Johnson goes to a factory 
we aren't told about it. Press photographers don't go. And so the only photos we get are of, you know... The authorised. The, author, yeah. the sort of, I mean, sort of North Korean style. Everyone's yeah, laughing yeah, and clapping and all of that. And they don't see the, the Prime Minister, you know, putting his hand in a mangle or whatever it is that yeah. he, he shouldn't have been doing. So, yeah, and then, yeah, there was this great story in the um, Times earlier this week about how uh, Liz Truss had had sort of more photos than the whole of the Cabinet put together taken in the last six weeks. And she's obviously trying to slightly rival Rishi Sunak's um, brand building. Does, yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. Does it excite you, James? It's, it depresses me a bit because I used to think the the one you know the one good thing about British or one of the good things about British politics was how incredibly unglamorous it was. Yeah, and if you're in American politics, you can stride way. around on stage and look incredibly important and glamorous, and you know it's very sort of aspirational. But you know British politics is all about people sort of you know looking a bit bored and sad, opening garden mm. centres, you know, standing slightly awkwardly in classes full of children. Uh, and it was a sort of I think it was a really healthy thing for politics that it never particularly looked glamorous and always these people really did look like um, public servants. Um, and I was struck watching the um, the new Labour documentary in the BBC. Actually, the kind of the sort of difference um, in tone of, of of the government now, and this kind of this sort of photography thing plays into it because Tony Blair and Gordon Brown always, in my perception um, from this documentary, far more often seem to be on television, getting into embarrassing situations, confronting awkward questions, having awkward moments, and seem to be really sort of excruciated about it and bothered by it in a in a way that. I sort of seem to have leaked away from politics now and it's much more kind of imperial official court photographers it's all much more glamorous um everything just rides above the head of anything you know the press or the public might say uh, i think that's i think that's a definitely i think that's a depressing development i think politics should be unglamorous and sort of slightly sad looking um i i, I looked back talking of sort of politics getting to you know it was better when it was slightly less glamorous i went back because this is how i you know spend my week i uh, i went back through a whole load of old budget statements and particularly Norman Lamont's, uh, the thing was from 1991. Uh, and he, like, there was no sense of, like, Rishi Sunak was like he was hosting a game show yesterday. It was like, yeah, yeah. this is down, that's that. And Norman Lamont was like, he literally got up and he said, like I suspect most chancellors, I found the preparation of this, my first budget, very exciting. Um, <laughs> and that was the, uh, you know, that was the, it, the, the whole sort of tone. And it was just a sea of grey men in grey suits. And this whole idea of the chancellor being the dull man in charge of the numbers, he was the nation's yeah. accountant. Yeah, and now he's the sort of, you know, yeah, whizzy game show host. Yes, business internet startup. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange, bad yeah, uh, thing. Bad thing. Bring we, bring bring back Gray. I'm afraid we need to move on. Mike's just messaged. There's a dire conversation taking place about f political photo ops on Times Radio. It sounds like a sixth form discussion at best. That's very unfair. James hasn't started sixth form yet. So <laughs> let's talk about your column instead, James. Yes. Um, so, um, in my in my in my habit of tackling, um, I need to something I need to tackle smaller topics. But this week is on genius, um, and <laughs> your own. <laughs> well, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, although I don't know, it depends. In a few years' time, when my ego has sufficiently expanded, I'll be, I'll be reporting. <laughs> yeah, well, reporting when, when, when it, Mike will be in touch. Just, yeah, just I think to Mike is. Uh, yes, Mike is. Mike is uh, popping any delusions. Um, I have about that. Um, yes. So this was about. I don't know, just think I'd noticed. I was thinking. Um, I was thinking about the kind of ubiquity of um, Jesse Armstrong, Succession's chief writer, in uh, various kind of being interviewed absolutely everywhere at the moment. And I was thinking how unusual it is um, to see uh, the writer of a TV show in the newspapers, how kind of rarely we see that nowadays. Um, and what kind of what a kind of change that represents from the fact that, you know, TV, which I think is probably 
you know, the most, the most kind of, at the moment, the most culturally prestigious, the most important, the most influential um, art form we have, these kind of prestige TV shows, how it's strange it is that they're run by armies of anonymous people, um, you know, producers, teams of script writers, all in the kind of, all in the writer's room, um, compared to, I think, you know, sort of 40, 50 years ago when the, you know, the big, the big cultural art form was the novel. And we had these you know, novel, individual novelists who are kind of acknowledged publicly as like these important geniuses, things to say about society, all over, all over the press, all over the media. Uh, and just what a kind of st strange trend this is, like, which I think is a trend away from our kind of this kind of respect we used to have for individual genius and towards these kind of much more collaborative art forms. So let's think about video games, you know, um, it's a massively influential, massively wealthy industry. And you know, I'm not sure I could name a single a single video game designer. I think probably a couple of people who are into it could, but the, we've kind of lost these like central cultural figures from our society, and everything I think now is sort of much more collaborative and anonymous. And I was slightly lamenting this. And so the the, the, the Jesse Armstrong is an example of a, of a sort of you know it, the succession is his, his genius. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What What do you think about this, India? Um, I think it's very true. I think it comes from the idea, as James says in his column, that everybody is as clever and interesting as everybody else. And, you know, in the case of novels, the idea that everybody has a book in them. I mean, maybe they have a book in them that would be interesting to their immediate family, but they certainly don't, <laughs> they certainly don't have a book in them that would be interesting to um, people as a whole. Um, and I think also there's a very kind of British... The British have a strange relationship with genius because I think that people are quite defensive. We don't really want, I mean, I quite want to say, wow, that person is amazing and I revere them. But I think generally there's a tendency to say, well, that person is amazing, but they're very lucky and they landed on their feet and, you know, Jesse Armstrong, something, something, something. I could probably do it in my sleep, a bit like mm. Mike. Um, uh, so um, <laughs> so, so there's, a, there's a kind of suspicion of, of outstanding talent and that's been constantly eroded, I think, in the last few decades particularly. And there's the idea that anybody could really do anything in the right circumstances, which is a wrong idea, I think. And it, I suppose it is part is also that sort of, you know, particularly like the awards show, you know, awards ceremony season where everyone has to thank everyone and then also, you know, acknowledge their privilege and their, you know, they, oh, well, you know, I'd be very lucky for whatever reason. And, you know, yes, and should display amazing, unnecessary levels of humility. Yes, you know. exactly. Well, you won't get any of that here. Quarter of a million people <laughs> listen to this, which is quite extraordinary. Congratulations. Yeah, I know it's exciting, but it's all down, it's all down to, uh, it's all down to the, the columnist panel. Let's see. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's definitely the key. India Knight and James Barrett there, and you can read them in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we take a deep dive into the small print of the budget. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, let's take a look at some of the bits you might have missed from the budget. Let's uh, speak to our panel. We've got Kitty Usher, Chief, Exe uh, Chief Economist at the Institute of Directors and a former Economics Secretary of the Treasury in the uh, Labour government. Morning, Kitty. Morning. Ah, there we are. There we are. Lovely stuff. Kitty's there. Uh, we've morning. Got, morning. We've also got Mike Brewer, the Chief Economist at the Resolution Foundation. Morning, Mike. Hello, Matt. Good to be with you today. Henry Merson is the Director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. Morning, Henry. Thanks to join you, Matt. And we've got Thomas Pope, who's Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. Hi, Thomas. Good morning. 
Lovely stuff. So what I thought we'd do is sort of pick through, I think you've all picked out slightly different uh, bits of the budget, but feel free to chip in if you, particularly if you, you drastically disagree with uh, something that someone has been saying, just to get your different taste. But let's start with you first of all, Kitty. And the, on the sort of the big picture, um, it, we do seem to have a Chancellor who says he's a low-tax, small-state Conservative who then goes on to expand the tax burden to the highest levels since the 1950s, government spending will be its highest levels since the 1970s, and lots of people saying that uh, this is the sort of budget that, you, you know, Gordon Brown uh, could have um, uh, delivered. What's your assessment on that, both as a... Um, somebody, you know, Gordon Brown was your, your boss, of course, uh, when you were uh, in the Treasury. Um, what's your assessment on, on, on making those two things match up, the ideology, the ideology of it all? Well, um, thanks, Matt. I think you've put your finger uh, right on it. So the way I see it is back in March, when the economy was looking pretty desperate, the only way that uh, the Chancellor at that time could make it look like he had a plan for this uh, enormous rise in government debt to start coming down again was to basically pre-announce some really enormous tax rises um, uh, a few years into the future. And he did that primarily by doing a massive U-turn on uh, conservative policy on corporation tax where you know, only two years ago, they wanted to cut it to you know, extraordinarily low levels, 17%. But he said back in March, actually, scrap that, we're gonna raise it to uh, 25% uh, and also take a bit more money from income tax as well. Now, since then, we've actually had some really good news in that the economy is growing far faster and has recovered much better than we thought it would back in March. Now, of course, if the economy starts growing faster, then they get more tax receipts kind of naturally and are spending less on things like unemployment benefits kind of naturally. So he found himself you know, in quite an extraordinary situation of having far more money than he thought he would because he had all these tax rises he'd already announced and the economy was, was, was coming back. Now, he could have said, well, actually, we don't need to raise tax as much as we thought we would have to. Um, and certainly that would have been welcome to business in particular. Um, uh, but he didn't. He said, well, actually, we're going to we're going to spend this. And so we've seen a budget with, you know, basically uh, a complete reversal of George Osborne's austerity uh, approach uh, after the, the last economic shock, shock of the financial crisis, uh, but also a budget where uh, the uh, the people who are, who, who are going to be paying for it haven't started to pay for it yet. And so whilst it might feel all right at the moment, what we're worrying about is quite hefty tax hikes that are on the horizon um, coming down at us, both for individuals, but also crucially uh, for businesses uh, who are the, 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 the engines of our future growth. And we're a little worried that the growth forecasts sort of in three or four years time are actually quite quite low as a result of um, uh, a possible tailing off of investment from, from the private sector. Call me cynical, if you like, Kitty, but do you think that this is all basically setting up for uh, a pre-election tax-cutting uh, budget where the chance to be able to say, oh, everything's going much better than I expected. I can now uh, cut, it, cut you know, some personal taxes, but possibly also some business taxes too. G 
going into an election and then he can claim that the you know, Conservatives are then high spending but also uh, low taxation. And what impact does that make then on, you know, from the Institute of Directors' perspective, like business trying to plan when, you know, taxes are going up and down based on sort of political whim rather than, um, uh, you know, long-term economic strategy? I think this is a really big problem. And, and what we're picking up from business at the moment is a sort of um, almost kind of Kafkaesque uncertainty about what government's going to do next. Um, and if you think about it, if you're trying to decide around the boardroom table whether to uh, spend money to invest for the medium term, whether that's you know your own profits if you have them or shareholder funds or even taking on debt to do so you need to have certainty about what the overall policy framework is and we've seen that uh, that certainty basically collapse and businesses are feeling very uncertain about the state of the economy at the moment and of course uh, what you say is right in that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has let it be widely known that he'd much rather be cutting tax than raising it. And I'm sure there's a political uh, purpose behind that, because otherwise those parts of his party uh, that think they've joined a low tax party uh, would be rather bemused and are rather bemused by uh, their their government being actually the one of the highest tax governments that, that we've seen in living memory. OK, that's, that's the picture from uh, business. We'll come back to you in a, in a sec, uh, Kitty, I'm sure. Uh, Mike Brewer, Chief Economist at the Resolution Foundation. You've been looking at what this means for individuals, personal uh, taxation, what's happening to benefits and so on, and crunching the numbers on uh, where this will leave households uh, compared to when Boris Johnson first became a Prime Minister. And it's a pretty eye-watering figure. Explain what, explain what you've worked out. Well, it follows on, yeah, very naturally from that uh, the high tax high tax state that we're moving to under Rishi Sunak. Um, by 2026, according to the government forecasts, the tax burden will be uh, up at 36% of GDP. Um, that's a really, which will be three percentage points higher than um, uh, than when the Boris Johnson took took office as prime minister, which is an, an enormous change in in just those seven years, and that three percentage point increase in the tax burden is worth uh, we think about three thousand pounds for each household in the country. Um, I mean, you said a few minutes ago, Matt, that Rishi Sunak wants to be a, a high spend, low tax chancellor. Of course, that's impossible. And, and, he, <laughs> and indeed, he. But he, he also recommitted a fiscal rules that made it impossible. So he knows it's impossible. Um, so what we're seeing here is that really at the, at the moment, his, 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 what's happening is he's, he's a high spending chancellor. And because of his fiscal rules, because he doesn't want to be fiscally profligate, he does want to be able to at least say that we are the party of sound public finances. If he's going to be a high spending chancellor, and whether that's his instinct or the prime minister's, you know, we, I, I couldn't say, but if he's going to be a high spending chancellor, he also has to be a high tax chancellor. And that means tax burden going up to record levels. And I suppose if, if it'd be one thing if the ta taxes are going up, if the economy was booming and crucially we were moving to the high wage economy uh, that the Prime Minister talks about, then that would possibly be, all be OK. But you, your assessment is that real, in real terms, wages are going to fall uh, next year and there's just no sign of some sort of surge towards becoming this high wage economy. That's absolutely right, yes. So the, the Chancellor began his speech with the, the good news from the from the economic outlook, but that all just applies to this year. 
So yes, this year has been has been good for the for the UK. We have not suffered as much from the pandemic as we might have thought, and the OBR think that the damage done by the pandemic is not actually not as severe as it could have been. But still, the long run prognosis for average earnings for household income is incredibly poor. So yes, next year in 2022, we expect um, average weekly earnings to fall in real terms. That's basically because inflation is just going to be going to be so high. But the longer, the lo what's more worrying is the longer run uh, prognosis. Um, five years out, the OBR think that average income is going to be growing by just 1.3% in real terms every year. Um, and, and this used to be more like 2% a year. Now that's not much of a difference, but if this happens every year, year after year after year, you just get the, well, we're just basically not, not, not becoming as prosperous as, as we might be expecting. And that ultimately is, is um, hitting people's living standards. And you might say, well, you know, people are well off, you know, people like me could probably pay a bit more tax and that would, you know, that, that, that's not going to um, sort of push me over, uh, below the breadline. But you've been looking at some of the, the impacts on some of the poorest households as well. And although there's some changes to universal credit, you've, you've looked at the, if you, if you combine lots of things, taking away the £20 a week uh, that was uh, put in place during the pandemic, uh, some of the extra support uh, and so on, um, you, you still think that on the average, the lowest, uh, the poorest families will still be worse off overall? Yeah, so coming into the budget, I, we're all very aware of the cost of living crunch this winter. Uh, OBR confirmed that inflation next year will likely be 4%. Um, but of course, the, the cost of living crunch for low-income families was partly off the Chancellor's making because he, earlier this month, he removed the £20 a week uh, uplift universal credit. Now, although yesterday we saw the Chancellor put back in two to three billion pounds into universal credit, that is not enough to offset the £20 a week uh, cut that he put in earlier this month. Um, and uh, so in particular, if, if you're, a, if you're, a non, if you're not working and on universal credit, so maybe you're sick or disabled, maybe you have a young child, maybe you're still looking for work, then right now that cut in the taper is no use to you at all. Um, you're just hit by the £20 a week loss and you've got, um, you've got fuel bills, energy bills going up, going up this winter. So that's the, the picture in terms of uh, personal finances. Mike Brewer, Chief Economist of the Resolution Foundation. Uh, we're going to take a look at what it all means for levelling up and uh, the winners and losers in the Whitehall battle of the uh, spending review. We're taking an in-depth look at the, the small print of the budget uh, here on Times. It's Matt Chorley in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. Does the thought of revisiting old diaries send a shiver down your spine? For years, Dame Joan Collins kept a sporadic voice diary. Years later, and she's collating these candid and often humorous memories in a new memoir, My Unapologetic Diaries. We'll ask her why in our big interview. Travel expert Ben Clatworthy will help us break down the government's decision to cut domestic air passenger duty days before COP26. And we'll be previewing the newest films, including The Rescue, that and all the latest news, views and interviews. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. And Mariella will be here in about 10, 15 minutes for the coffee break. Although we're not having coffee this morning, we're going to have some fizz. You'll find out why just after 11.30. Um, all fizz, of course, which is cheaper as a result of the budget because the Chancellor cut the uh, the duty on it. Look, let's turn our attention to um, 
leveling up one of the big uh, policy priorities of the government. Henry Murson is the director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. So right on the front line of the leveling up agenda. More, uh, uh, morning, Henry, again. Um, morning, Matt. What's it, what, what's it, what was in it for the leveling up agenda? And then, I mean, the Northern Powerhouse was very much a sort of uh, the baby of George Osborne. Uh, Rishi Sunak sort of uh, torched the, 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 the sort of Osborne era of austerity and so on. Is, is the Northern Powerhouse still alive and well? And what, what, what does levelling up, are we any close to working out what levelling up actually means in practice? I think there's probably more continuity around the approach to regional disparities actually under this government than, than in a, any other area. Right. So as part from the rebrand of, of the Northern Powerhouse levelling up, there is quite a lot of of consistency. So the devolved funds that Rishi Sunak was adding to, those are all going directly to Metro mayors, both Conservative ones like Ben Houchin on the Tees Valley, uh, but also to Labour politicians. And that kind of spirit of kind of working with your political opponents. And you had Andy Burnham on the TV and radio at the weekend sounding very positive about the budget, right? And what the government was doing, particularly in that, that specific area. So you are getting back to that sort of almost kind of cross-party consensus, at least between civic leaders and the government, which was very much the hallmark of the the Osborne era. I think in terms of the detail, I mean, the levelling up funds that's been announced is a is a more traditional kind of Whitehall beauty pageant. So you had to put in your bids and it is, I'm sure there are reasons why some of those bids were successful and didn't, uh, that isn't entirely about politics. But one of the ones that was a bit of a shocker was uh, Billingham didn't get any regeneration money. It's for anyone who's not familiar, a town in the northeast, but nearby Yarman Eagles Cliff that are significantly more prosperous and leafy did get money for their town centres. So I think there is a challenge for the government, which is that if they had be more willing outside of transport funding to trust the mayors and give them more of the funds rather than run these big national competitions. The money's used more rationally and the economic problem, which obviously is this kiddies department, but I'll, I'll freestyle a little bit, is that if you spend money on lots of little projects, even though I actually think some of the projects are really valuable, the Berry Market, where the Chancellor was today, is absolutely a driver of footfall in Berry. It's a good project. The other projects in Berry that the council put forward with their MPs, good projects. But you could have given that money to Greater Manchester and let Andy Burnham fund the market in Barry. You don't, as the Chancellor, have to pick between uh, different towns in uh, Teesside or uh, particularly in a place like Greater Manchester. At the time, we sort of said to the Chancellor when he first announced this fund, at least where there are metro mayors, give them an allocation and just let them allocate it between projects because the, the, it took the government longer to allocate the money than they gave people to bid for it. And <laughs> the problem with that is it's just, it's just irrational. And, and I'm in Sheffield today, the leader of uh, Rotherham next door made that point and he had a, a great project that was funded one of his went with Woodhouse which is a great old uh, country pile out in South Yorkshire a great a great asset for the nation but one of his other projects didn't get funded and the point is it should really be up to Dan Jarvis and the leader of Rotherham right to work out what they do with the scarce resources that might be available for South Yorkshire I'm not sure that the chance of kind of getting the names wrong this morning of Burnley and and Berry Market has done much for the idea that whether it's the Chancellor or an official in his department, that somebody in those positions should be making these detailed, granular decisions. Do you I think, think we went to the trouble of electing these mayors. They should do it. I was going to say, do you think that basically this is politics? That uh, you know, da uh, Dan Jarvis in uh, South Yorkshire, Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester are Labour politicians. And what Rishi Sunak wants to do is go to these places, once he's learnt the names of them, uh, turn up with a big cheque uh, and his taxpayer-funded photographer, and they can take some nice pictures for his Instagram, and he can say that he's paid for this, that and the other rather than having, you know, Andy Burnham or Dan Jarvis taking credit for it. Do you think that's a bit of what's going on and that actually politics is is sort of overriding sort of economic sense? I mean, the thing is, though, they did they did do that for transport, right? So they've got they've got it right for some bits of the budget, but they've got it wrong for others. And I think I think your your challenge is probably a fair one, Matt, which is that 
the government, I don't think, is quite understood yet that Northerners in particular, at least from the Northern Powerhouse, are not necessarily interested in each individual scheme. They're interested in whether they're getting more prosperous, whether there are more jobs in their local area, whether they think their kids will be able to get a better paid job when they leave school or university or college. And, and actually, I think whether you're a Red Wall voter or, or a punter anywhere in the north of England, I think you're probably pretty astute about what the economic chances are for you and your family. And I think you're more interested. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure those people were more interested in things that would actually drive up productivity. And the challenge with doing the, the sort of announcement thing is that it naturally forces you to do short term, easy to deliver things that can be done before the next election things. Whereas, in fact, actually, we haven't had as much of the replacement for EU funding as we were promised. The Shared Prosperity Fund is looking pretty light. It's on a trajectory towards what we got from the EU, but it's nowhere near that. And lots of these northern areas, lots of these red wall areas were absolutely big recipients of, of, of money from the European Union. South Yorkshire, Liverpool City region, these places got a lot of EU cash. And the problem for the government is if you if you've actually withdrawn that money, which was paying for things that would actually drive up productivity, people will start to notice that. And I think that is a real problem for this government. OK, so that's the picture with uh, with levelling up and, and the funding of local government and so on. But what about the, the broader, the spending review? We had a budget and a spending review which sets spending uh, for the coming years. Thomas Pope, Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, has been going through all of the, the, the spreadsheets and the tables and, and seeing how all the uh, money adds up. Uh, Thomas, in, in terms of, first of all, the sort of the headline claim from Rishi Sunak that uh, spending is going up in real terms for every government department. Uh, is what he said in the House of Commons. Is that quite right? And how, given a, you know, after a decade of austerity of one sort or of another, how significant is it then that if it go, the, the, the spending is going up? That claim does pretty much back up. Um, it's um, it, it's pretty close with a couple of departments. You, know, you can see the treasurer sort of move fifty million here or there right at the end, just so that they can make that claim. But the big picture on this spending review is that it is really generous. It's more than 3% a year in real terms um, for the next three years. Most of that money is actually coming in in next year. So it's really front loaded. And that's a good idea, given that we want um, public services to be able to recover from COVID, deal with backlogs quickly. And really, the, the bizarre thing on public spending, certainly at a higher level, is that just a few weeks ago, the Treasury was continuing with a pretense that there was going to be this really tight spending settlement that would have meant real terms cuts for lots of departments next year. And really, that was never going to be deliverable, given what's happened in the last 10 years, given the impact of COVID and given the government's commitment. So really, that, that was all a bit farcical, but it did allow the Chancellor to announce very big increases um, yesterday. Um, we should point out that in some cases, you know, the big, particularly on the education spending, uh, increase in education spending. But people are pointing out that in, in real terms, it's just taking us back to where we were in 2010. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think... You can start if you start your analysis in this year, 2021, you're going to see very big increases if you account for you know, more than 20 percent cuts in many departments between 2010 and 2020. You know, some departments are sort of getting back towards that, that pre-crisis level. So I think that education per pupil spending is just about back at 2010 levels. The Justice Department, they got a generous settlement yesterday, but they're still quite a long way below their 2010 level and will still be by 2024. And even being flat in real terms over 15 years isn't, isn't a great outcome, really. We would have expected to have done much better than that. So absolutely, the important context here for the next three years is the 12 years or so that have preceded it. But nonetheless, this is still um, generous increases, should allow 
public services to, to deal with COVID. I think one of the challenges that will come down the track is that because most of the spending increases are coming in next year, after that, there aren't really, really many increases and um, people that are good for lobbying for more public spending will no doubt be pointing out in 2023, hold on, there's not very, a very big increase coming this year because there was a very big increase the year before. So I suspect that's another challenge the Chancellor will have to deal with down the line. But right now he can sort of enjoy the fact that for the first time in a long time, public services are actually getting uh, the sorts of money that, that people have been calling for. Is this a, um, uh, a, a, a sort of recognition that during the early stages of austerity, the sort of 2010 to 2015, we were told, you know, Theresa May said, yes, you can cut police numbers and it doesn't affect crime. You can take money out of education, but results still do. Is this actually, this is, I mean, Richard Sinat won't say this in the dispatch box, but it's proof that if you do cut the funding, that services are less good. And so you, over a long period of time, a gradual erosion, you can only take a bit of money out and immediately nothing happens. But over time, there is an erosion. And then the pandemic hits, highlights lots of those shortfalls, and you have to start try to stuff the money back in again. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So we, we do an annual performance tracker, which looks at the performance of, of nine different public services kind of across the piece. And what, what you could see is that those first couple of years of austerity, you could kind of get away with it. There was probably a bit of fat that you could trim and performance didn't um, really suffer. But then from really the mid 2010s onward, I, I would say that even before the pandemic, really the sort of impact of lower funding on public service performance was pretty clear. But that perhaps has been exposed even more in the pandemic and there are the additional pressures from the pandemic. So yeah, I, I think, you know, it's good news in a way that when we spend more money on public services, we, we get more out of them. Um, but that does also mean that when you take a lot out, you're going to get going to get worse as well. And I think actually across the board, in many ways, what Sunak did yesterday was a bit of a reverse Osborne. You know, he's the the UC taper used to be at 55 when when Universal Credit first came in. Osborne increased it to 63. Now it's fallen again. Um, per pupil spending now going back to 2010. Talk from Sunak yesterday about spending more on on libraries and other um, local spending, which was was cut uh, pretty savagely under Osborne. So while he's retained that commitment to um, to sort of sustainable public finances, fiscal discipline, and um, he's doing it in a completely different way. He's decided actually we need to increase spending, um, and that, as as we've already mentioned, means much higher taxes. Okay, just finally, then I just want to ask you all because you know the. Everything's still up in the air right now and, you know, it's the morning after the budget and all of that. It, looking a week ahead or a month in the future or, or whatever, what will this budget be uh, remembered for? Is it all good news or are there sort of some gremlins hidden at the bottom? Just sort of in a sentence, if you like, um, what, what do you think the budget will be remembered for or the thing that we need to keep an eye on in the coming months? First of all, Kitty Usher from the Institute of Directors. Well, Absolutely no change in the massive hike in uh, business taxation, both uh, national insurance contributions uh, and corporation tax. Um, you know, uh, uh, 2020, that's what 2021 is about, as, as far as particularly smaller firms are concerned. Lovely stuff. Uh, Mike Brewer from the Resolution Foundation. I think what will come back to bite the Chancellor is he didn't do anything to solve the energy crisis this winter. So no VAT cut, no direct help for those suffering with energy bills. He may regret that. Uh, Henry Morrison from the, uh, from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. So he, he signalled that the integrated rail plan would be soon. That's the thing that brings the HS2 and Northern Powerhouse rail decisions. Clearly they have longer term financial costs, relatively short amounts of money in the, in the near term. But 
government will have a real challenge to prove that leveling up is credible if that's not ambitious and at the moment that isn't clarity yet on what will be in that map and finally thomas pope from the institute for government i think i'd agree with mike i think actually there was very little on the cost of living crisis yesterday and as real wages start to fall over the next six 12 months i think we may look back at this and think why, why didn't he do a bit more Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 